Unless you're going to be in the Precepts Bible study, which is studying Joshua. And the timing is amazing. We didn't plan that. Uh, the ladies that do the Precepts Bible study didn't even know that I was finishing Joshua this weekend. Uh, they just are studying through the Bible, book at a time, happened to be at Joshua. They're planning on starting this Tuesday. Go to that Precepts Bible study. Don't say in your heart, oh, we just finished studying Joshua on Sunday mornings for nine months, so I know that. Listen, you didn't study it. I studied it. You didn't study anything. I did all the studying. You listened. I preached and taught, and you listened. But if you get in the Precepts Bible study, you will study, and you will learn infinitely more on those Tuesday mornings than you learn by listening to my sermons, because you will be doing the work yourselves. And so... I don't care what you're doing. Quit your job Tuesday. Show up at Precepts Bible Study. Uh, it's going to be phenomenal. You don't want to miss that. You'll be well trained in the Word. Well, we're in Joshua 24. We're going to finish the book this morning. This is it. Uh, the grand finale. We're just going to read chapter 1, excuse me, verse 1 of chapter 24 and then pray. Then Joshua gathered all the tribes of Israel to Shechem. And called for the elders of Israel, and for their heads, and their judges, and their officers. And they presented themselves before God. Let's pray. Lord, we just want to thank you for the incredible time that we've had together in the book of Joshua. Since January, these nine months have been so rich, Lord, and you have done so much in our lives. Teaching us about victorious Christian living, and possessing the promises And laying hold of by faith all that you have for us through the cross and the resurrection. And we just ask that this morning, Lord, you would tie it all together. And the Holy Spirit, you'd come and gather up loose ends in our hearts. There's been so much repentance over the last nine months, but it's probably a little more that could happen. Some things that we let go, some areas that we miss, some some wrong places that we return to, some settling we've done. And so Holy Spirit, come and stir in our hearts this morning a zealous passion for your name and your glory and your kingdom and to be your people, a holy people set apart. Lord, in and of ourselves, we are really wrong. But your word is so right on. And so we invite you, Holy Spirit, to come instruct us. I would submit my thoughts and my tongue to you and we ask together that every syllable that comes from this mouth would be from the throne of grace and useful for the building up of your bride, Lord. So speak to us now. We ask it together in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it says there at the end of verse 1 that they presented themselves to God. It's the end of a season. It's the end of a whole outplay of history in the life of Israel. And they gather at a place called Shechem, which was very historically and religiously significant for Israel. And they present themselves before God. That's a key phrase that I want you to sort of tune in on. They presented themselves before God. Because there is in many of our lives and many of our spiritual seekings a disconnect at that juncture. You see, we are a religious people to be sure. And we know how to perform religious duties And we know how to put on various displays and we know how to show up for church and we know the lingo and the Christianese and all these other things. But what is so often lacking is a sincere, genuine, authentic presenting of oneself before the Lord. Presenting yourself before God. So many fail to do that. To really 
come before the Lord. Paul wrote in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, I urge you therefore, brethren, I'm begging you therefore, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual, or as the New King James puts it, your reasonable service of worship. In other words, he says, I am begging you to respond to who God is and what God has done by presenting yourself to Him. By making yourself a present to the Lord. A living sacrifice. By bringing your life before Him. In the book of Romans, Paul laid out one of the greatest theological, theological treatises in all of Scripture in Romans 1-11. through 11. Heavy doctrine and theology. And then when he gets to chapter 12, now he's going to make a shift toward application. And what's the connection between doctrine and application? It is the presentation of yourself to God. It's moving beyond an intellectual agreement. It's moving beyond a religious activity. And it is presenting yourself actually to the Lord. Every fiber of your being. In reality. In relationship. Giving yourself to God as a living sacrifice, giving yourself up and to God. Paul says, when you think of all that God has done for you, it makes perfect sense to give yourself to him wholeheartedly, to present yourself. Now, it shouldn't be so, but as I mentioned, it's a major disconnect in many of our spiritualities because we go through a lot of motions. But so often we fail to really come before the Lord. You know, you can even read your Bible and never connect with Jesus. You know that you could pray and never really be connecting with the Lord? Did you know that you could be right next to a great move of God and miss the whole thing? Just ask Judas. He walked with the Lord for three years, just kind of missed the whole point, didn't he? Just ask those who were with Saul on the road to Damascus that day when he encountered the risen Lord. His life was changed. The others, they they didn't even get it. Just ask those who were on the bank of the river with Daniel that day when the Lord Jesus Christ made a pre-incarnate appearance to him. Daniel was in awe of the Lord. The others, they they didn't even get what was going on. You can see, you can be right next to a radical move of God and just miss it. You can come to church every single week for years and never connect with the person of Jesus Christ. Why? Because it is a heart attitude, people. It's not religion and it's so much more than just showing up. It is a hard attitude that displays that which the psalmist said. As the deer pants after water, so my soul thirsts after you. To hunger and thirst for the person of Jesus Christ. You know, I found that too seldom when the church gathers, too seldom have the individual members spent time preparing themselves to come into the presence of God. Not often enough do we prepare ourselves to come into the house of the Lord, to present ourselves to God. You see, we often come into church in sort of a a haphazard, casual way. And we are casual here at Reality. But we must be mindful of the fact that we are going to meet with Jesus Christ. And there ought to be some preparatory work that happens in our hearts. But too often it's just, wow, I got to Starbucks and the line was long and I got my Starbucks and now I'm barely making on time. Actually, I'm about five minutes late. No big deal. They're just singing songs. Shame on you in the name of Jesus. We do not sing songs. We worship Jesus Christ, the risen King. 
Shame on you if you think the, the music time before the message is a buffer period for you to comfortably arrive at church. Shame on you in the presence of the Lord. That's when we present ourselves before Jesus who died for us on the cross. That is when we give praise and glory and honor to his name that is due his name. And yet so often we're worried about, well, Starbucks, they burnt the coffee. They always burn the coffee. She don't want the coffee bean and tea leaf. And we're coming in here and, ooh, balloons and hey, hey. And we just kind of walk in and, oh, they're singing. Uh. We might even, you know, look pretty good and, you know, did our hair right and got the right cologne on and Megan and all this stuff. And we prepared ourselves a little bit. But so seldom do we prepare the inner man to meet with the risen Lord. I love it when my bride adorns herself for me. I, don't you dig that, man? Don't lie. Come on, you guys love that. When your wife gets all dolled up for you, you know what I mean? My woman, she knows just how I like it. She's asked me for years, how do you like my hair? Do you like my hair like this? I don't really like it that way. She'll never do it again. <laughs> you like my hair like this? Yeah, I love my hair like this. Do you like this outfit? Yeah, I like this outfit. Listen, when your woman asks, just tell her the truth because she wants to know she wants to look good for you. Just tell her the truth. Well, baby, maybe that's not the best color for you. <laughs> Or maybe you shouldn't. I don't know. <laughs> Ask the Lord. He'll tell you what to do. But this is my point. I love it when my bride adorns herself for me. She gets all dolled up and all cute and all ready, you know, to, to, to be with me. That speaks something to my heart. How much more should the bride of Jesus Christ adorn herself to meet with a bridegroom? Should we not adorn our hearts to meet with our king? Should there not be some preparatory work that happens in men and women when we're going to the house of the Lord? Yeah, there ought to be. We ought to enter in here in a different way. And we ought to enter in every single day to the presence of God. They presented themselves. They made themselves presents unto the Lord. It's a hard attitude. And if we fail to do it regularly... We're failing in our spirituality. And here's Israel at the close of a season, as a new one's about to unfold, presenting themselves before God. And what that meant for them was that they would gather the tent of meeting. Now, here's what happened subsequent to that. When they gathered before the Lord, the Lord spoke to them. We're going to read in the next few verses that the Lord speaks to them. And whenever you really present yourself before God, He's going to be faithful to speak. He is going to be faithful to speak in your life. He is so infinitely and intimately and wonderfully concerned with everything about you. If you really come before him, he'll speak. And God begins to speak. And what God's going to do in these next few verses is remind them of the awesome things that he's done. He's going to remind them. We just finished reading the book of Psalms in our, in our one-year Bible reading, right? And over and over it comes up again how we're to remember the deeds of the Lord. How to rejoice in what the Lord has done. How the deeds of the Lord are studied by those who delight in Him. You know, the Lord loves to be remembered and that's right and good. We all love to be remembered. The Lord has done great and awesome things. And so now, Israel's gathered at Shechem, this religiously, historically rich area. They're presenting themselves before God and God is going to speak to them a brief history of what He has done thus far in Israel. And then Joshua, their leader, is going to pick it up in verse 14 and tell them how they ought to respond. Verse 2. And Joshua said to all the people, <clears throat> Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, From ancient times your fathers lived beyond the river, namely Terah. 
the father of Abraham and the father of Nahor, and they served other gods. But I took your father Abraham from beyond the river and led him through all the land of Canaan and multiplied his, his descendants and gave him Isaac. And to Isaac I gave Jacob and Esau. And to Esau I gave Mount Seir to possess it. But Jacob and his sons went down to Egypt. Then I sent Moses and Aaron. And I plagued Egypt by what I did in its midst. And afterwards I brought you out. And I brought your fathers out of Egypt, and you came to the sea, and Egypt pursued your fathers with chariots and horsemen to the Red Sea. But when they cried out to the Lord, he put darkness between you and the Egyptians, and brought the sea upon them and covered them. And your own eyes saw what I did in Egypt. And you lived in the wilderness for a long time, said the Lord. Verse 8, then I brought you into the land of the Amorites who lived beyond the Jordan, and they fought with you. And I gave them into your hand. And you took possession of their land when I destroyed them before you. Then Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab, arose and fought against Israel. And he sent and summoned Balaam, the son of Beor, to curse you. But I was not willing to listen to Balaam, so he had to bless you. And I delivered you from his hand. And you crossed the Jordan and came to Jericho. And the citizens of Jericho fought against you. And the Amorite and the Perizzite and the Canaanite and the Hittite and the Girgashite and the Hivite and the Jebusite. Thus... I gave them into your hand. Then I sent the hornet before you, and it drove out the two kings of the Amorites from before you, but not by your sword or your bow. And I gave you a land on which you had not labored, and cities which you had not built. And you lived in them, and you are eating the vineyards and olive groves, which you did not plant. And now Joshua tells them how to respond in verse 14. Joshua says, Now therefore... Fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and truth. And put away the gods of your fathers that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. And if it is disagreeable in your sight to serve the Lord, then choose for yourselves today whom you will serve. Whether the gods which your fathers served, which are beyond the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Now the Lord gives them a brief history lesson. And Joshua, being the great leader that he is, pushes them to make a decision at that moment. He prods them. He provokes them. He pushes them to make a decision. He says, you guys have just heard what the God, what the God of Israel has done for you. Now what are you going to do in response? He says, what you ought to do is fear the Lord and serve Him. Joshua's going to tell them to serve the Lord 15 times in this chapter. Fear the Lord and serve Him in sincerity and truth. And then he says, choose for yourselves this day. Make a decision right now. How much longer are you going to waver between two opinions? If God is God, you better serve Him. If you want these other gods, then make up your mind and go after them. But today is a day for decision. You've heard what the Lord has done. And He pushes them and provokes them and tells them to make a decision concerning the Lord after hearing what the Lord has done for them. Now, we have a brief history in the book of Joshua. We've been studying the book of Joshua as a church now for nine months. And just as the Lord had done so much in the history of Israel, God has done so much in our individual and our corporate lives through the book of Joshua. Who can forget the lessons? 
Who can forget that the book of Joshua begins to unfold with all of Israel on the wrong side of God's promises? You see, 38 years earlier at Kadesh Barnea, they chose not to enter into the promised land because they were afraid of the giants. There were giants in the land. And so for lack of faith, they chose not to obey the Lord and enter in. And now they've wandered in the wilderness for 38 years. Many have died because of that rebellious decision. And now they come again to the Jordan River. And what they find themselves is that they are hemmed in and cut off by a bad decision. Namely, that they never entered in when they should have. And now they're hemmed in and cut off from the blessings and the fullness and the promises of God. And you remember that we talked about bad choices that we make. And how so often those bad choices hem us in and cut us off from what God has for us. And that Jordan River becomes a picture for us of the consequences of rebellious decisions. Now the Lord's desire was to bring them through that obstacle. The Lord's desire was for them to overcome the consequences of their rebellious decision. But they were going to have to follow the Lord. Is there anything right now, we talked about it nine months ago. Is there anything now today that has you hemmed in and cut off from where God wants you to be? From all that he has for you. Because you know he has so much for you. He told them in chapter 1, everywhere where you put down your foot, it's yours. In other words, he already gave them all the land. All they had to do was possess it. They just had to walk on it. They had to possess it by faith. He already gave it to them. They had to possess it. But we realize, don't we, that ownership and possession are two different things. Ephesians chapter 1 says that we have already been given every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places through Christ Jesus. It's already ours. Everything pertaining to life and godliness is already ours through the finished cross of Jesus Christ. All we need to do is lay hold of it by faith. That's the adventure of the whole Christian life. God has given you all this and we just dive into it and experience it and receive it by faith. So often, though, we, we settle for less than all that the Lord has for us. Didn't our prayer become nine months ago? Corporately, Lord, we want everything you have for us. Nothing more, nothing less. We want the fullness. We want to possess all that you've set aside for us. Everything that's flowed forth from your kind Father's heart. Do you remember this map from nine months ago? The red outline is a region that God gave to Israel. That was all that God gave them in his heart. They could have had all that. The blue outline in the lower left-hand corner is all that they ever possessed under Joshua. Just a tiny portion of what God had for them is all that they ever laid hold of. And we asked ourselves the question, if we were to make a spiritual map of our lives, how big is what God has for you? Oh, listen, you cannot exhaust all that the Lord has for you. The Bible says that his thoughts are... They outnumber every piece of sea, every piece of sand on every seashore of the world. How much does the Lord have for you? And if we were to be honest, how much of that are you possessing right now by faith? Are you pressing into everything the Lord has for you? Are you settling for less? Are you selling yourself and the Lord short? Israel came up short on all that God had for them. And who can forget in, in uh, Joshua chapter 1 how terrified Joshua was? He had to fill the shoes of Moses. Mo was dead now, and Joshua was a new leader. And 400 years of prophetic history were laying on his shoulders. He was terrified. And what did the Lord say? Be strong and courageous. Don't be afraid, Miho. Be strong and courageous. It's going to be okay the way the Lord comforted him. And then the Lord gave him great advice. Be very careful to do all that I've commanded you. He said, Joshua, if you'll be careful to obey me, then you will have success wherever you go and you will prosper everywhere that you set your feet. And that is the recipe for success in the Christian life. 
is adhering to the word of God, observing the word of God, letting the word of Christ dwell richly within us, as Colossians says, hiding the word of God in our hearts that we might not sin against him, as Psalm 119 says. And who can forget what happened in chapter 2? When God stopped the forward motion of a whole nation because he cared for the heart of a little girl, Rahab, she was a prostitute. She'd been ripped off in every way. She'd been perverted and maligned and just ripped off in every way possible. And a whole nation is moving toward their destiny. And our God was willing to stop 400 years of prophetic fervor to go after the heart of one little girl. Who can forget that? That's who our God is. Joshua chapter 2, he stops the whole nation and he goes to save a girl named Rahab. And then in chapter 3, he brings him to camp along the Jordan. He's about to bring him over, but he lets him camp there for three days. Why? That they might survey the enormity of the obstacle before them and that they might come to the place of realizing we will never get across this thing without our Lord. We cannot do this in and of themselves. People, you've heard that when you come to the end of yourself, you come to the beginning of God. Sometimes God will camp us out in an obstacle that's so big and he'll just wait for us to realize, okay, I can't do this, God, I give up. But so often we're scratching for every resource, every bit of wherewithal, every connection, everything that we could possibly drum up in and of ourselves before we turn to the Lord. And he let him camp there before the enormity of Jordan, overflowing its banks and the harvest before they realize, okay, we're going to need the Lord. And then he sent the ark out ahead of them. Remember, they were going to cross over, but the ark had to go before them. Do you remember the details? That the ark had to be over half a mile in front of the nation before they would cross the Jordan. Why was that? Because the nation was about two and a half million strong at this time. And remember, the ark of God represented the presence and the power and the person of the God of Israel. And the reason that he set the ark and the priest half a mile in front of the nation was so that every individual... Every mom, every dad, every little kid might have a clear, unobstructed view of the person, the presence, and the power of God. And remember, we asked ourselves, is there anything that's obstructing our view of Jesus Christ? Is there anything that's gotten between us and the Lord? Have we positioned ourselves in such a way that we see the power and the presence and the person of Jesus leading us? If there's anything that's obstructing that vision, it's got to be dealt with. And remember, he told them the night before he brought them into the land, he said, consecrate yourselves for tomorrow. The Lord will do wonders among you. Purify yourselves, sanctify yourselves, he said, because tomorrow you're going to see the wonder working power of God. And we suggested to ourselves that if we had more today's of purity, we would see more tomorrow's of power. If we had more today's of purity, we would see more tomorrow's of God's power. And who could forget that the Lord would not part the waters of the Jordan until the priest stepped in. The proverbial step of faith. He told the priest, you need to get your feet wet. And we asked ourselves, are we willing to get our feet wet? God is going to ask us to make some bold moves. Are you willing to get your feet wet? Are you willing to make that step of faith and, and step in to where God wants you to be? You don't see the finished product yet. He's not going to show you the finished product, man. He's not going to give you the 10-year plan. Just a Light into our path and a lamp into our feet, just illuminating the next step. He told the priest, you step in the water. They had to take that step of faith before the Lord would part it. They had to believe and they had to trust. And the Bible doesn't say how long they had to stand in the water before the Lord parted the waters. But if I know the Lord, and if I know Scripture, it was probably some time. 
You know, there's so much that's accomplished when we wait on the Lord. When we obey the Lord, and then He has us waiting. And just remember, we spoke about this extensively. If God has you waiting, it's because He's working. And waiting is work. We don't like it, but waiting accomplishes a work. If God has you waiting, it is because He is working, and they stepped out in the water, and they waited for the Lord to act. And at the right moment, the Lord parted the Jordan. And you'll remember that they went out, the priests with the ark, and they stood in the midst of the Jordan River, and then the whole nation who was following half a mile back went around the ark, maintaining that half a mile distance, and the, the Jordan was parted for 20 miles, and they went across. They would come up, there's the ark half a mile in front of them, they see that the ark stopped, and they just go around another half a mile just tripping out, oh, the ark of God, whoa, going into the land of Canaan. And then after they crossed into the land of Canaan, then the ark of God representing the power, the presence, and the person of Jesus Christ would come after them. And don't you remember that picture of the ark going before and being in the midst and coming after? That's who the Lord wants to be for you. He wants to go before you. He wants to be in the midst of your life. And he is your rear guard. Did not the psalmist say, as the mountains are round about Yerushalayim, so the Lord is round about his people forevermore. The Lord Jesus will surround you if you're willing. And what I love is that when they got in the land of Canaan, they had no mud on their feet. You see, the Lord dried up the ground of the Jordan that they would walk through. Meaning that when the Lord does the work in our lives, it is thorough and it is good, it is clean and awesome and wonderful. We make messes, not the Lord. And so if there's mud on your feet, you better ask yourself some questions. Because when they were in the will of the Lord, man, it was clean, it was whole, it was complete. They didn't step into the land of Canaan and all, oh my sandals. I got to get new. This is disgusting. This mud. No, man. When the Lord did it, it was clean and wonderful and right. And then in Joshua chapter four, remember they set up those memorial stones at Gilgal, a reminder of what the Lord had done thus far. And a reminder that the next generation, the next generation would come and they would see those stones and they'd go, what happened? And they would tell them about what the Lord did on behalf of Israel. And we need those reminders in our lives because we're a perverted people. And so often we just forget what the Lord has done. And the enemy would like to ascribe credit to you. Just like Nebuchadnezzar stood on the walls of Babylon and said, look at the kingdom I've built. And God went, oh, really? And do you remember from the book of Daniel that God made Nebuchadnezzar that feathered cow bird grass eating thing? The heart of man is so arrogant. We need reminders in our life that it is the Lord who has brought us thus far and preserved us. And so the first thing they do when they get in the land is they recommit themselves to the covenant. And every male in Israel is circumcised. Now that was militarily a bonehead move. Because they had all the armies of the Canaanites before them. And now they're going to incapacitate themselves to give attention to obey the Lord. Now that was a wonderful move. They're incapacitating the whole army in a willingness to obey God and recommit themselves to the covenant. Are you committed to what the Lord has for you this day? You know, if you walk according to your own understanding, you're going to go awry in so many areas. And you will plow a crooked path in this life. But acknowledge the Lord in all your ways and He will make your path straight. It's not always going to make, this, make sense when it's the Lord. Because His ways are beyond our ways. And at the end of Joshua 5, do you remember this? All the guys have been circumcised and Joshua goes out for a little night reconnaissance mission. Do you remember that at the end of Joshua 5? And he goes up to look at the walls of Jericho and he encounters in the middle of the night a warrior with his sword drawn. Do you remember that? And it was the Lord. Joshua didn't know yet, but it was the Lord. And Joshua goes, 
a warrior in the middle of the night. And Joshua says, are you for our enemies or for us? And the Lord says, no. (laughs) Okay, wait, it's an either or question. Are you for our enemies or for us? And the Lord said, no. Rather, I am the captain of the hosts of the Lord. The Lord teaching Joshua, my son, you just asked the wrong question. The question humanity needs to ask itself is, am I on the Lord's side? Not is the Lord on my side. Is the Lord going to bless what I'm doing? Is the Lord into what I'm doing? Listen, brother, listen, sister. Are you into what the Lord is doing? Because he's the captain. And so often we want to take control of our own ship. We want to be the captain. But I'm telling you what, Jesus Christ is the captain. And he wants to be much more than fire insurance for you. He wants to be your Lord and your Savior and your King. And he's a good King. And what the Lord did that night to Joshua is the Lord reasserted his authority. He said, Joshua, I've raised you up and you're a great leader and a great military commander, but I'm the Lord and I'm in charge. Don't forget it. Joshua never did. And so then they go up to Jericho in chapter 6. Those big, huge, ominous, famous walls. And you remember what the Lord had him do? The Lord had him first position the ark in the middle of the people and then walk around the walls. Once a day for six days and then seven, time on the seven, seven times on the seventh day. And the Lord wanted the ark in the middle because again, he's reminding them that God is to be the center of our life if we're going to get victory. If we're going to experience a victorious Christian life, Jesus has got to be in the center. And so the Lord positioned the ark in the center. So often we put Jesus in a peripheral place. Let's be honest. So often he's an addition or a thing on Sunday or a quick prayer at the dinner table or an afterthought or a what if or a someday. But that's not victorious Christian living. If we're going to see the walls come down, we better get Jesus in the center. And so Jesus was put in the center, the ark there representing the presence, the power, and the person of God. And then he had him walk around the walls, but he had him be quiet. He said that they couldn't say a single word. Why? Well, because they had grumbled and complained for 38 years in the wilderness. And God says, Cayete, mijo. I've had enough. (laughs) Be quiet. Now you be still and know that I'm God. Do you have those times in your life? You get in the car, first thing you do is turn on the radio. You get home, first thing you do, turn on the TV. You have a free moment, what do you do? You do text messaging, calling, emailing. Uh, but do you have some quiet time where you can be still and know that he's God? There's a, there comes a time where the Lord says, be quiet. Be still. And those are often the times where we experience a great victory like they did at Jericho. And do you remember that before the walls came down, there was the shout and the shofar. You remember the shout in the shofar? That they had to let out the shout and then there was the blow of the shofar and then the walls came down. And we talked about archaeology. How the Hebrews very clear that the wall collapsed on top of itself. If an army came, they would have dismantled it and thrown it this way or pushed it that way. But archaeology shows that it collapsed on top of itself, just like the Bible said it did by the power of God. And yet archaeology showed that there was one portion of the wall that had not fallen on the northern side of the city. Why? Well, because that's where that little girl named Rahab lived. And the Lord had made a promise to the heart of this little girl. And the Lord had purpose in his heart that he would save her and all her stuff and her family. And can you imagine her? She is on those walls and the whole world that she's known begins to shake and crumble around her. And all she could do was trust in what God said. 
And brothers and sisters, he was absolutely faithful. When the walls came down, her house stood intact, and archaeology shows it because our Bible said it. And when your world starts to crumble, you better know Jesus is going to be faithful to you. They weren't supposed to take the stuff from Jericho, but Achan did it anyway. And he hid it in the earth underneath his tent. Now, there's an Old Testament picture there for us. The earth underneath his tent. The New Testament says that this body is a tent. And it compares our heart to soils, to earth. Achan hiding those forbidden things in the soil, in the earth underneath his tent, is like those hidden sins that we keep in our heart. Now, do you remember the result of Achan's hidden sin? They could not get the victory as long as that sin was in the camp. The whole nation went up against Ai and they should have been easily taken Ai. They easily should have been able to. But they could not get the victory as long as that forbidden thing was hidden in the earth underneath his tent. And we ask ourselves, is there any hidden sin that we've had that is keeping us from victory? Those little things that we harbor and we say, Lord, this is not for you. This is my gig. I'm going to handle this. I want this. This is mine. And you need to know that you cannot experience victorious Christian living with sin hidden deep in your heart, with rebellion that you're harboring. You just will not be able to get the victory. Those things have to be repented of. And do you also remember that Achan sin cost other people? That the whole nation was defeated because of his sin and found themselves in the valley of trouble and his family was killed because of that man's sin. Brothers and sisters, we would love to sin in a vacuum. We would love to be able to sin in such a way that it didn't affect anybody else. And Satan will tell you that it doesn't. Satan will say to you, you can do this and nobody will ever be affected. No big deal. It doesn't hurt anybody else. That's a lie from the pit of hell. We, my brothers and sisters, are interconnected by the blood of Jesus Christ and the spirit of the living God. And your sin affects me and my sin affects you. You better believe it. Our sin affects one another. My sin affects my wife and my son and my daughter. There's no such thing as sin in a vacuum. It has a horrible corporate effect. And so they found themselves defeated because there was sin hidden in the camp. But in Joshua chapter 8, who can forget the comeback? Oh, the comeback. Listen, deal with the sin that you've hidden in your heart today and watch what the Lord does. Today's a great day for you all to get right. Today's a great day to get right. Deal with that hidden sin and there is a great comeback. What the Lord did at I was turn their place of defeat into a place of victory. That's what the Lord wants to do in your life. That's who he is. He's the redeemer. He's the one who restores and renews. He exchanges beauty for ashes. You come to him with your ashes and he'll give you beauty. Uh, a spirit of fainting for a mantle of praise. You come to him weary and heavy laden and he'll give you a mantle of praise and joy and peace that surpasses comprehension. He's the redeemer. He's the one who restores the years that the locust has eaten. He takes the places of defeat and turns them into victory. That's who our God is. That's what he did in chapter 8. But in chapter 9, Joshua was deceived by the Gibeonites. Remember, they disguised themselves and they were enemies in the land. The enemy disguised themselves and they tricked Joshua and all of Israel. And we talked about the fact that Satan disguises himself as an angel of light, that he's sneaky, sneaky. And that he seeks to deceive the believer. Because you see, if you're a born again Christian, he cannot get you to hell. You understand that? Once you've been born again by the blood of Jesus Christ, you can't undo that. He didn't make a mistake when he saved you. He saved you and you're saved. So Satan can't snatch you out of his hand and take you to hell. So what he wants to then do is just complicate your Christian life. He wants to just drag you away from the simplicity 
of following Jesus and complicate things and he will do it with deceptive means. And Joshua was deceived by the Gibeonites and it complicated their life so incredibly and there's only one reason why they were deceived. They didn't inquire of the Lord. He went ahead and made a decision without stopping and saying, Lord, what do you think about this? Let me consult the word of God. Let me seek the spirit of God. Let me ask God about this moment in my life, this situation, this relationship, this union, this financial reality, this purchase, this decision with my kids, this move. Let me ask the Lord. And if Joshua had just stopped and asked God, he would not have been deceived. You have not because you asked not. So many times we just fail to include the Lord in the daily happenings of our lives. But he's wonderfully concerned with all the little things. And then recovering from that by doing the right thing. In Joshua chapter 10, they're engaged in the battle of a lifetime. Do you remember that one? They're engaged in this huge battle and the battle's going on through the day. And Joshua now, as a man of God, Joshua discerns, okay, what do we need to get the victory right now? Because normally in those days when you were fighting a battle and the sun went down, everybody would just go to bed and wake up and start fighting again. But Joshua wanted the victory for Israel that day. What do we need to get the victory now? Joshua knew they needed more daylight. So what did Joshua do? Something we would never do. Joshua said, hey Lord, we want to get the victory today. Get the victory today. We need more daylight. Would you please stop the sun? And the Lord stopped the sun. The Lord is so zealous for his people to experience his blessings and his victory. He'll stop the world for you. Now listen, the Lord stopped the sun and the sky that day. However he did it, let me say this. That is not a fairy tale. That is not a fable. That is not mythology. That is the inerrant living word of God. The Lord did that on behalf of his people. It was a unique day. There's never been a day like it. But I've got no problem believing it. Why? Because I'm a big godder. I'm a big godder. I got a big view of God. Big godder like pre-tribber, Bible thumper, big godder. I got no problem believing that God stopped the sun, nor do I have any problem believing that he'll stop the world for you today to rescue you out of your battle. He's a warrior on behalf of his people. And then remember that after they got that victory over those five kings, that Joshua threw them down on the ground and stood on the back of their neck. In ancient vernacular, it's called making a public spectacle of the enemy. Colossians chapter 2 says that's exactly what Jesus Christ did on the cross. He made a public spectacle of Satan, just stood on the back of his neck and rubbed his jaw in the dirt. He's been defeated and he's been disarmed, Satan has. So why do we give him so much leeway in our life? My wife and I were just talking about this the other day. We were under incredible attack this week, my wife and I. And we knew we were under attack and we just had a hard time getting the victory. And later on when we finally got the victory, we looked at each other and said, why do we, why do we let the enemy do that for so long? Sometimes it's hard. You know, because the enemy's tenacious. He's persistent. And he's very well trained in what he does. but he has no legal right. He's been disarmed. He's been dethroned. Jesus Christ made a public spectacle of him on the cross. He has no ownership, but he'll love to squat and he'll take ground. If you give it to him, don't give him any ground. And then Joshua chapter 11, they came up against horses and chariots. They'd never been against horses and chariots before. They'd never seen horses and chariots coming against them in that way. Not this generation, not since Pharaoh pursued them at the Red Sea. In the words of the psalmist come to mind, some boast in horses, some boast in chariots, but we will boast in the name of the Lord our God. And the scripture comes to mind, no weapon formed against us will prosper. 
And the scripture comes to mind in a battle like that, not by power, not by might, but by my spirit, says the Lord. And they trusted in the Lord and they got the victory that day. And what we read in chapter 11 is that Joshua left nothing undone of all that the Lord told them to do. Do you remember that point? Joshua was meticulous in his obedience. So often we're very sloppy in our obedience. Just sort of haphazardly, I'll obey you here. I'll obey you here, but not really sure about there. Don't want to pay attention to that. I don't even want to think about that. Joshua was meticulous in his obedience. He left nothing undone of all that the Lord told him to do. And what we read at the end of chapter 11 is that there was rest in the land. Obedience brings peace to our lives. Peace that surpasses comprehension. Compromise yields turmoil. Compromise is usually the path of least resistance, and so we think it's going to be good. But obedience yields peace. Compromise, turmoil. Is there anywhere in your life that you're compromising? Is there anything the Lord's called you to do and you've left it undone at this time? Go back and do it, brother. Go back and do it, sister. It will bring peace into your spiritual landscape. And then in Joshua chapter 12, there's just a big long list of all the victories that Joshua and the Israelites got. And remember, I had you guys take a piece of paper and write down all the victories that the Lord has given you, all the things that God has done in your life. And remember just recently we started realitypraise.com, a little blog site where you can go and just post a praise of what God has done in your life. Listen, it's been recorded in all of history in Joshua chapter 12, the victories that Israel got. Should we not also record the victories that we get in Jesus Christ? Should they not be remembered and proclaimed to the next generation? Absolutely they should. And then in Joshua chapter 14, we encounter Caleb, that old nasty dog. Caleb, just that old warrior. And it says about Caleb that he was wholehearted for the Lord wholehearted for the Lord. And remember, they were dividing up the land and Caleb came and said, hey Joshua, I want the hills of Hebron. The hills of Hebron. What do we know about the hills of Hebron? That's where the giants were dwelling at that moment. He's 85. He's 85. And he comes to Joshua and he says, Joshua, I feel as strong today as I did 40 years ago. I want the hills of Hebron. I want the giants. I don't want the path of least resistance. I don't want to settle in my old age for an easy life. I want to fight the battles with the Lord. I want to see the victory for God's people. Those giants messed with my people some 40 years ago. I want to go and take them right now. I'm as strong now as I was then. Give me the hills of Hebron. I'm going after the giants. Oh, Caleb. Caleb was a bad man. He was wholehearted for the Lord and he followed the Lord to the very end. And then in 15 through 21, those chapters, the people received their inheritance. Just experiencing the blessings of God. But they also experienced the persistence of the enemy. Is there anywhere in your life where the enemy is persisting? You need to make sure you're resisting. James 4, 7 says, resist the devil and he'll flee from you. He is a persistent thing. (laughs) Is there anywhere in your life that the devil is persisting? Be sure that you are resisting. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Stand firm on the promises of God. Cling to the person of Jesus Christ. He is a warrior on behalf of his people. The Lord is. The great failure of Israel in these chapters was they failed to drive out the enemy from some key regions. 
they allowed the enemy to remain and the enemy got a stronghold and that would come back to haunt them and to pull future generations away from following after God. Is there anywhere in your life where you've let the enemy persist? There's a stronghold or maybe just a foothold or maybe just a finger grab. But you're letting it remain. You're not routing the enemy out of that area. You're letting them have that place in your life. Brother, sister, don't do it. Route the enemy out today in the name of Jesus Christ. You stand firm and resist him. You come forward to the prayer team and you have them all lay hands on you. You cry out on God. You do what you got to do to get the victory today because the enemy comes to kill and steal and destroy. But Jesus came that we might have life and have it more abundantly. Any area where you're allowing the enemy to maintain ground in your life, don't do it. And then in Joshua 23, verse 14, Joshua said, Now behold, today I'm going the way of all the earth. And you know in all your hearts and in all your souls that, look at this, not one word of all the good words which the Lord your God spoke concerning you has failed. All have been fulfilled. Not one of them has failed. And so then he simply tells them in verse 14, Fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and truth. That's the simple message of the end of the book of Joshua. Look at all that the Lord has taught us in the last nine months. Look at all that God has done in our lives. And so now we need to respond. Fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and truth. You've got to make a decision today. I'm going to push you just like Joshua pushed Israel. I'm going to get in your face right now just like Joshua got in their face. I am telling you this day, you need to choose whom you will serve. Joshua said in verse 15, if it's disagreeable in your sight to serve the Lord, choose for yourselves today whom you will serve, whether the gods of your fathers uh, that they served that were beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you're living. But as for me and my house, I am going to serve the Lord. Joshua takes a stand and he takes a stand on behalf of his family. As for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. You guys are still divided in your heart, Joshua said. He wouldn't be giving them this exhortation if he knew that they were still not harboring idolatry. They were divided in their heart. Yes, they knew who the God of Israel was and they wanted to follow him. But they were also attracted to these other false gods. And Joshua is not saying it's okay to follow after the false gods when he says choose either the God of Israel or the God of the Amorites. But what he is saying is it is impossible to serve both. Jesus said, you cannot serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other or hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon or riches, wealth is in the God thereof. Riches and wealth in the God thereof. It is impossible to serve two masters. Who is the master of your life today? You must choose today whom you will serve. Now, Many of us will be very quick to give lip service and say, well, Jesus is my master. Is he really? Because Jesus said you will know them by their fruit. If Jesus is your master, it's going to be evident in your life. It's going to be evident by what you watch, what you listen to, what comes out of your mouth. God have mercy on me. How you spend your money, how you spend your time, who you choose to be with. Those are the evidence of whether or not Jesus Christ is your master. And to say he's your master and to not put that on display is a technical definition of blasphemy. 
And so Joshua is pushing them now. He's saying, you guys are going to serve somebody because that's human nature. But no more are you allowed to have a divided heart, he says to the nation. You've seen what God has done for you. You guys have just heard all that the Lord has taught us in the last nine months. Decide what your stance is now. Joshua said, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. What's your stance? You cannot serve two masters. One has to go. Look at the people in verse 16. And the people answered and said, Far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. For the Lord our God is he who brought us up and our fathers out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage and who did these great signs in our sight and preserved us through all the way in which we went and among all the peoples through whom midst we passed. And the Lord drove out from before us all the peoples, even the Amorites who lived in the land. We also, with you, Joshua, will serve the Lord for he is our God. Look at verse 19. Then Joshua said, you're not going to be able to serve the Lord. Whoa. Wait a minute. Wow, Josh, that's kind of mean, man. I mean, you're telling the people, choose today whom you're going to serve. And they said, we want to serve the Lord. And he said, no, you won't be able to. Why? Well, Joshua is a great leader and he's been made very wise by God and he's able to spot lip service when he sees it. And he knows the history of Israel and they have a history of lip service. That is saying one thing and doing another. When Moses came down off Mount Sinai in Exodus 19, he came down and said, this is the word of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord to you. And the whole nation said, we're going to obey every single word of it and we're going to follow after God forever. And a few weeks later by Exodus 32, they had made for themselves a golden calf and were fornicating with one another around it and declared it to be the God who brought them out of Egypt. You see, Joshua knew the history and he knew their tendency. He knew that it was too easy for them to promise obedience to the Lord. It was actually something else for them to do it. And so Joshua's stern words were meant to curb their overconfidence and make them look honestly at their own hearts. And people, that's what we've got to do today. We are finishing nine months of studying the Word of God. We're going into a brand new season as a church. We've got to look honestly at our hearts today and say, Lord, is there any division in my heart? Is there any wayward thing within me? Is there any secret sin that I'm harboring? Is there anywhere that I've settled on the wrong side of your promises? Anywhere where I've let the enemy have a foothold? Any giants that I'm allowing to remain in the land? We've got to look honestly at our hearts today and be very willing to repent. Because as he says in the rest of that verse, verse 19, you will not be able to serve the Lord your God for he is a holy God and he is a jealous God and he will not forgive your transgression or your sins. What do you mean he won't forgive you? Joshua said he's not going to forgive you. When will God not forgive you? When you don't repent. The only sin that God won't forgive us of is one we don't repent of. Now, of course, there are sins that we're not even aware of. That's why it's so important to have an attitude of repentance. To confess and repent. The only sin that God will not forgive you of is a sin that you are unwilling to repent of. He says, if you continue in your disobedience, verse 20, if you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, then he will turn and do you harm and consume you after he has done good to you. And the people said to Joshua, no way, we're going to serve the Lord. And Joshua said to the people, then your witness is against yourselves that you have chosen for yourselves the Lord to serve him. And they said, we are witnesses. He just wanted them to know, do you really want to serve the Lord because he's a holy God? Jesus wants us to know the same thing. 
Didn't Jesus say, hey, if you want to follow after me, you've got to pick up your cross, deny yourself daily and follow me. He said, no one, after having fixed their hand to the plow and looked back, is fit for the kingdom of God. We are to follow wholeheartedly. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God, the undivided, the singular in heart. He said, God is a holy God. If you guys are going to follow him, do it wholeheartedly. And then he said, God is a jealous God. God's a jealous God. Now, we don't understand jealousy because we're wicked. And so almost always with us, jealousy is accompanied by some sort of sin. But we know that jealousy is a reality. And and it's right in certain contexts, like a husband and a wife. You know what I mean? They should be jealous for one another's love and attention. Some guy gives my wife too much attention, I'm going to kill him. (laughs) I'll be incredibly jealous. You give my wife too much attention. God is incredibly jealous for you and I. Do you understand that? And there's no sin in his jealousy. But he is, he defines himself to be a jealous God. And so we must ask ourselves now, as we're done with the book of Joshua, is there anything we are doing to make the Lord jealous? Any affair of the heart, any idol, any wandering, any relegating him to a peripheral position, is there anything we are doing at this moment to provoke the Lord to jealousy? Joshua said, you're not going to be able to follow the Lord. He's a holy God and he's a jealous God. Unless you repent, he won't forgive you. And they say, no, we want to follow the Lord. And so he says in verse 23, well then, put away the foreign gods which are in your midst and incline your hearts to the Lord, the God of Israel. That's all you got to do. Put that together with verse 14 and four points to follow the Lord. Fear the Lord. Serve him in sincerity and truth. Put away foreign gods and incline or turn your heart to the Lord. Now, there's not a one of us right now who's not saying, oh, yeah, I want to follow the Lord. We're all saying that. But Joshua told him how to do it. Fear the Lord. Revere him. Enthrone him. Magnify him. Extol him. Realize he is holy. Fear the Lord. Serve him in sincerity, authenticity, in truth. Serve the Lord in sincerity and truth. Don't be like those in Titus 1.16. They profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny him, being detestable and disobedient and worthless for any good deed. Put away foreign gods in your midst. You see, as they had defeated the Amorites and the Canaanites, they had gone in their cities and picked up their little idols. They're little gods and these things that represented these demonic powers and they took them into their homes. You know that we do it all the time? But we do it at places like Costco and Blockbuster. Oh, this video is only five bucks. I'm going to bring this into my house. And we bring things into our house that represent the ultimate idol, Satan. To put away false gods, to put away idols means to do a little bit of house cleaning. Is there anything in your house that's an abomination to the Lord? You ought to get out of your house today. I mean, it's really good advice. You ought to get it out of your house today. And finally, he said, incline your hearts to the Lord. Just move your hearts toward God. But people, we're done with the book of Joshua. And we can't go another day longer without making a decision. Choose this day whom you will serve. Let me give you the best news you're going to hear. We are not like the Israelites. In that age, in that dispensation at that time, the Holy Spirit was only given to certain individuals. 
In the church age, the Holy Spirit has been poured out on every single believer. We have power that all the Israelites never had. That is power to follow Jesus Christ. Joshua can't say to us, like he said to the Israelites, you're not going to be able to follow the Lord because we have the power of the person of the Holy Spirit. Amen? We have received power from on high to be his witnesses. And so we have everything we need for life and godliness. 2 Peter 1.3 says, we have everything that we need to follow Jesus Christ today. The only thing that is left is a decision. As for me and my house, I'm going to serve the Lord. And then in the rest of the chapter, Joshua makes a covenant with them. He sets up another memorial stone and then he dies. And Eleazar, the high priest, dies. And a whole season in the history of Israel comes to a close. And they'll embark on a brand new season. And the book of Judges is just the biggest mess you've ever seen in your life. They would very soon break every promise they ever made to God. But let me tell you something. God never broke a single promise he made to them. And there's the same truth in the New Testament for you, I. 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy 2.13 If we are faithless, he remains faithful. He cannot deny himself. They broke every promise they made. God never broke a single one. The fact that there's a country in the Middle East that is called Israel is evidence that God has never broke his promises to them. And he will keep his word to you. Everything that he has said has come to pass. Choose this day whom you will serve. Amen? Thank you, Lord, for your word. And Holy Spirit, your hand is heavy upon us. And we ask now that you would just help us to make deep application in our lives, Lord. Lord, help us to just do a little bit of house cleaning now as we enter into your presence. We want to rid ourselves of those idolatrous things, even if it be ourselves. We want to get off the throne and get you enthroned in our lives. We want you in the center. We want whatever it is we need for the victory today. Thank you, Lord, that you're a warrior and a faithful one at that. Help us, your weak and frail people, Lord. Would you come and move in our midst by your Holy Spirit now? Would you come and heal waywardness? Would you come and pull us out of miry clay? Would you come and heal backsliding? Would you come and rout out rebellion? Would you pull down walls? Would you break up fallow ground? Want to be right with you today, Lord. Don't want to give you lip service. Want it to be life service. Help us, Holy Spirit. I'm going to call upon you guys to get very real with God today. Don't get tired now. Press into the person of Jesus Christ. You do what you need to do to get the victory today. Prayer team is up here. They're mighty in prayer. You need to get on your face. Get on your face. You have hands laid on you, get hands laid on you. You need to pray with a bunch of people, pray with a bunch of people. Do what you need to do to get right today. If you need to repent of the forbidden thing that is hidden in the dirt, in the dirt underneath your tent, you do that today and you experience the freedom of Jesus.